from KPFK in Los Angeles, California, Valley Free Radio in Florence, and WMBR in Cambridge, Massachusetts, WNUC in Detroit, and BikeTalk.org worldwide. This is Bike Talk. Bike Talk. Hey, Nick. Hey, Lindsay. Hey, Taylor. Hi, Taylor. Hi, Nick. We got someone else with us, you guys. Eli Akira Kaufman. Welcome, Eli. Thanks for having Thanks. me again. I figure, you know, every time it's like, well, that's the last time these guys will invite me in. But I do appreciate being brought back to connect and share what's going on. Eli that's is right. the executive director of formerly LA County Bike Coalition, now Bike LA. That's it. Bike LA. So well, it works, I think. Taylor, you're going to be going off again, so I guess we should... Well, I'm just going for a couple of days. I'm going up to Park City, Utah to do a little biking with some friends. You know, now the big thing is gravel bikes. Everybody's got a gravel bike, and I don't have a gravel bike. <laughs> so I've been working on my bike, which is a regular road bike. I'm kind of altering it so it can be more gravel friendly. Road bikes used to have 19 millimeter width tires, racing bikes and stuff, and then they went to 23s. And now they're at 25, so that's like the basic width. Well, gravel bikes are 32-width tire or even bigger, 40-width tire. So I'm altering my bike to be more gravel-friendly by putting on fatter tires. And it's kind of a poor man's gravel bike. Well, so we have Eli, and Eli is going to tell us about Bike Fest coming up. But we also have Stacy Randecker and Luke Bornheimer from San Francisco. We're going to talk about Valencia's Center Running Bike Lane which leaves something to be desired. And somebody was killed recently. Then we have uh, the mayor of Santa Monica, Gleam Davis. And then we have a PE teacher from Massachusetts who is healing from a knee injury using an e-bike. Let's hear about Bike Fest, Eli. What's going on with that? Before we dive in, it reminds me this conversation about the types of conversations you have while riding about something that Jim Withrich used to say, who was our former board chair, which is that when you get on a bike, you become a member of every community you ride through, which I think is really true. It's kind of a different yeah. take on the conversation piece, but essentially you're contending with the quality of air, the quality of the street infrastructure or lack thereof. And you really get to sort of experience the communities that you're riding through firsthand in a different way than say, if you're in a car or even on foot. I think it's about as fast as the brain can process information is the speed of a leisurely ride. Right. Whereas when you're on foot, you might fixate on something and you may not get that overall sense of a place the way that you do on bicycle. Being on a bike connects you to where you are. Yeah, I love that. I think traveling by bike is the perfect speed of observation. Yeah. I love that because biking is so much about joy and meditation. It's like these two incredible feelings at once and it's getting you somewhere and it's free it's like, yeah. and it's social. I'm at the point where if I don't have to drive, I just bike. Like today I went to the valley for the bike to strike. I traveled a pretty great distance and I did it on bike. And when I got there, I was energized. I felt great. It was really pleasurable. And had I driven, I would have been uptight and anxious. There's some really important data coming out about how being in cars makes us depressed and its effect on children. An unbelievably high percentage of kids are on anxiety medication. The writing's on the wall. We need a different way to build our cities. Eli, you have a son, right? 
I have a son and a daughter. I've raised Gia in a cargo bike. And I feel a massive difference between when she's in the car facing backwards in the car seat, looking at her little mirror, and I'm looking in my rearview mirror, and we're trying to connect versus sitting in a cargo bike with her facing backwards and just looking eye to eye at stops. I'm looking ahead when I'm riding, but when I'm stopped at stops to observe things. And since she's gotten to be two and she's looking forward now, the conversation has continued and she's been an early talker and an early connector. And I give most of that credit to the positioning of the cargo bike. We've been looking at each other for these two years as we ride. And then for my son, we ride to school. We're one of the small group of parent-child riders. Those shared experiences, those close calls, calling out glass or issues on the road, but also the beauty that we see as we ride together. I feel like I'm much closer to him as I drop him off. It makes you very present. So how does all this fit in with Bike Fest? That's what we <laughs> right, want to hear. Bike Fest. No. Hey, first yeah. of all, thanks for having me on just to sort of plug our event. Although if you go to our website, you'll see that we are sold out, which is a great wow. problem to have. A lot of people came out of the woodwork. So we have over 250 people showing up. We're going to be at the Highland Park Brewery. We're going to be mostly using this as an excuse to get together and have a beer and share some of our wins and losses over the course of the year but mostly elevate two different people and one project that we really want to shine a light on. First is going to be Laura Friedman, who's a some member from District 43. And she's really known of late for her bike omnibus bill, which had four major ideas. One was to enforce changing lanes to pass cyclists when you're driving a car, making sure that all e-bikes are allowed on all bikeways, to make sure that bikes can cross on walk signals, And then finally, to end any more bicycle licensing ordinances, which actually is being fought again for e-bikes. There's been a move to force e-bike riders to get licensed, which in our perspective at Bike LA is just yet another way of creating barriers to having people an impediment. Exactly. So we want to honor Laura because she's been doing so much great work. She's just one of those people as a leader that shows up to Ciclovias and to various events consistent about making sure that we have alternative modes of transportation. And then the other two are Tafari Bain, who's the chief strategist, is his formal name at Ciclavia. He's done a lot of the public engagement throughout the years to get the Ciclavia routes approved and knocking on doors, talking to different groups from PTA members to faith-based organizations to get folks to really not only accept that Ciclavia was coming, but embrace it for those days that we call car holidays in Los Angeles. People are now asking for it sometimes in certain neighborhoods. That's right. So we're going to be honoring Tafari for his decade of work. And then finally, we're going to honor a project that we've been working on quietly and not so quietly for three years, Sunset for All. It's a 3.2 mile idea that's a bi-directional protected class four bike lane along a mountainous pass of Sunset Boulevard, which really doesn't have any calm streets that are parallel to it on either side for miles in either direction, north and south. We call it the existential gap that prevents east-west travel in that part of town. And if we can close that gap, then we're suddenly connecting over 100,000 people to Metro and to businesses along the corridor, uh, schools and such. And eventually we'd like to see that go all the way down to Union Station. So it really becomes a hyper-regional play to connect different types of modality, like walking, biking, and transit users to our major transit hub, Union Station. Well, this brings us to our first interview, Eli, because up in San Francisco, Valencia Street, 
they have just done some redesign on by putting a bike lane in the middle of the street. I can't think of any bike lanes in our area where we have that, but there has been a fair amount of community outreach about people who don't think that's the best way to configure that street. So Nick, I think we should go to that interview. What do you think? Yeah, let's play it. And thanks, Eli. Have fun thanks for having this. me. I have Stacy Randecker and Luke Bornheimer, both San Francisco bike advocates. Would you call yourself that? Yeah, I call myself a sustainable transportation advocate. Sure. Stacy. Me too. I mean, it's an understatement for sure. <laughs> okay. And we're going to talk about a few things today, but it's mostly bike lanes and deaths in bike lanes that we've talked about before. Well, at least one of them is Valencia Street. Stacy, you've always talked about Valencia Street and yeah. maybe Luke too. Yeah, we're both big fans of Valencia Street, Valencia for people over here, and Luke is better Valencia. Luke has long advocated for side running bike lanes, especially since this monstrosity of a center running bike lane. Me, I have been car free for, I don't know, probably about five years. I've been talking about Valencia should be car free. It's one of the most vibrant corridors we have. And it just seems silly to try and have a street that has so much going on to not have that as being our first pedestrianized merchant corridor in San Francisco. There are about 10,000 students that go to school on Valencia Day. There are various preschools. There are two K-8 schools, a middle school, and it's all on that street, along with some of the best bars and restaurants in the city. So many cute shops and churches and all of this going on. And it's cars, cars, cars. Why are cars given the priority on such a narrow stretch of street then we had the outdoor dining spaces as well. So we were going to have side running bike lanes, but then when the pandemic hit, we got all the shared spaces and none of us would say, take those away. That's what helps give it life. So instead of sacrificing cars and parking, they are sacrificing people on bikes and pedestrians instead. They put the center bike lane in, which had a very low favorability rate. Right. Yeah, I'll just say that I was vehemently opposed and was not alone. And Luke can give you more details about the types of criticism and how widespread it was. Yeah, as you mentioned, Nick, SFMTA proposed this center bikeway design, did a three-month outreach process, and got 13% support from the public for their center bikeway design. This wow. is basically an unheard of low support rate for anything that SFMTA has ever done. They just forged forward with that same design. In an effort to try and avoid a catastrophe, I launched a campaign called Better Valencia and organized people behind it saying SFMTA should instead install curbside protected bike lanes as they did in 2019 between Market and 15th Streets on Valencia to resounding success. And in fact, in about a month, the number of people who supported the Better Valencia campaign was almost six times many people who supported the center bikeway design in that three-month outreach process that SMMTA did. Despite that, despite overwhelming public comment in support of curbside protected bike lanes and against the center bikeway design, the SFMTA presented only the center bikeway design to the SFMTA board of directors, and that board unanimously approved the center bikeway design. SFMTA started installing that center bikeway within three weeks, which is an unheard of turnaround 
for the agency to install a design of any kind. People started using it within a month, despite SMPA saying it was closed to people on bikes after lots of public pushback and countless people being injured, in part by the material used on the center bikeway. SFMTA finally launched their 12-month quote-unquote pilot actually in July, and we are now about maybe 60 days into that pilot, and we have the first person killed on Valencia Street since this bikeway pilot has started, since the bikeway was installed. So do you have the circumstances? Yeah, it was an 80-year-old man who had the right-of-way. He was crossing Valencia Street. Broad daylight, very sunny, beautiful day. And a car driver making a left turn on Valencia Street hit him. The 80-year-old man ended up on the car and was later pronounced dead. And the center bikeway design, because it is a -a one-of-a-kind design used nowhere else in San Francisco and frankly rarely used anywhere around the world, is confusing and counterintuitive to drivers. And so undoubtedly this driver turning left on Valencia would have been confused. Do I turn into the center bikeway? Where do I go? And so the center bikeway absolutely factored into this. And either pedestrianizing Valencia or installing curbside protected bike lanes may very well have prevented this death. I know 100% what would have prevented that. If Valencia were pedestrianized, there would be no car to turn onto the street. It would be impossible. If we could bring ourselves to do that, this man would still be with us today because you would only be able to go straight on 18th Street. And frankly, now I think that the intersection of 18th and Valencia should be closed altogether. Forget just having Valencia with no cars. We should have select intersections that have no cars. Yeah. What a relaxing feeling that would be. SFMTA should pedestrianize Valencia Street immediately or install curbside protected bike lanes. Now, we don't need any more studies or plans or outreach. We need immediate action to make this street safer and better for people and better for business. We know that from SFMTA's own data, that people who walk, bike, and take public transit spend more money at local businesses than people who use cars. The best thing we could do for the businesses on Valencia Street is to pedestrianize the street. This is the second pedestrian death on Valencia Street this year. In January, a woman was crossing the street and a vehicle was turning off of Valencia onto 16th Street. So two blocks away, a woman was killed on the same stretch of street. It's not just a hypothetical that Stacy mentioned. SFMTA justified the center bikeway and pushing it forward by referencing the death of that woman on Valencia Street. And now that another person has been killed on Valencia Street, SFMTA has said nothing publicly about it. And the people who supported and defended the center bikeway design haven't talked about how now we need to change Valencia Street. And that is discouraging and frustrating. When an airplane or a car has a fatally flawed issue that results in serious injuries or deaths, the government takes swift action to stop anyone from driving those cars or flying those planes until they figure out what's going on to make it safe for people. When the 737 MAX, the Boeing 737 MAX, had an issue, the FDA grounded every single one of those planes. When someone's killed on a street, we don't even close the intersection. And the suggestion that's being implied that we fix one intersection or one street or one block at a time every time someone's killed is insane and infuriating and frankly, an insult to just people. And I think our city and our mayor and the head of the SFMTA 
really need to look themselves in the mirror and asking themselves, do we really need this expectation that someone needs to be killed on every single block and at every single intersection before we finally do what we need to do to make our city safer for people to get around outside of cars? Transportation engineers, as they are now, if you were a doctor, it'd be malpractice. If it's a lawyer, you'd be disbarred. These people in other professions, when they are so irresponsible, I guess, in their duties, they lose the ability to practice in that field any longer. Yet, if you're a transportation engineer, you can have as much blood on your hands and that not a thing happens to you. Nothing. There's no recourse. Actually, I'm not even aware of a city street that has ever been reexamined because it's so poorly designed, much like this. And that is the kind of thing that has to stop. If we're going to get serious about cities trying to eliminate this obvious catastrophe that's happening in our midst and reach our climate goals, people should be walking and biking and taking transit. And if we're making it that much harder to do it, that much scarier and keeping people frightened and in cars, it's just a horrible spiral and we've got to stop it. And in bigger and bigger cars. Right. Yeah. Bigger and bigger cars, also heavier cars. People love to talk about how electric vehicles are a really great thing, that that's solving our climate crisis. Turns out those cars weigh much more than gas cars, which means they are much more deadly when going the same speed as a gas car. When I was organizing and advocating for curbside protected bike lanes and asked SFMTA staff, why did they not create an official design for curbside protected bike lanes, even to give their board of directors an option, a choice at that final approval? The reason they gave was that curbside protected bike lanes would not have allowed for car parking, private car storage on both sides of the street. So ultimately, a project which they claimed was about making the streets safer for people walking and biking, prioritized cars and private car storage over the safety of people walking and biking, which is tragically ironic. And it also goes against what our city voted on. Um, for 50 years, we've been touting that we're a transit first city and not one day has it ever been true. They put at the bottom of every project as we are transit first, and it means X, Y, Z. They all say that they're supposed to prioritize people walking, biking, taking transit. They never do. Can you believe anything that anyone in government says? And I am not anti-government at all, but it gets really tough when they say they're going to do something and they don't do it. They say that they care about people's lives, and yet they're not showing that. They care about cars and the ability of people to drive everywhere, and it's just too much. <laughs> Our current mayor, London Reed, when then a supervisor, voted for the Vision Zero pledge and goal of having zero roadway deaths by 2024. And last year, her fourth or fifth year as mayor of San Francisco, we had the most roadway deaths, 39, since that goal was set back in 2014. We're seeing less people use sustainable modes in our city. Mayor Breed is objectively failing and failing our city on Vision Zero and on sustainable load shift. We need to do something drastically as a city, and she particularly needs to do something drastically to move us in the right direction on this, because right now we're moving in the wrong direction on both of those things. Let's talk about the Ethan Boys killing by a motorist on Arguello Street and your activism around that. 
Luke and I were both in the SFMTA board chambers, along with a whole slew of bicycle advocates to hear about whether the board would approve these atrocious plans for Valencia. As Ethan Boyce, a world cycling champion, he was killed by a motorist who drove across the lines. Only K-Rail, only Jersey Barrier would have protected him. He was bounced right off the hood of the vehicle and was pronounced dead at the scene. And the driver was so injured and believed to be under the influence and required medical treatment and were taken to the hospital. It is five and a half months later, and we still do not know who this person is. They are driving amongst us. I publicly called for the city to immediately separate the paint-only unprotected bike lanes in the Presidio Trust land with quick-build materials, K-71 plastic posts, um, and then follow it up by installing concrete or raising the bike lanes to the sidewalk level. And then on the SFMTA part, you also fully separate the bike lane and then later install concrete, fully protect it. Neither of those things have happened more than five months later. And the Presidio Trust has installed inadequate, unacceptable infrastructure for only one small section of one side of the street. And SFMTA is proposing a multi-month outreach process. If people are curious or want to learn more, want to support either of these efforts, bettervalencia.com will take them to the Valencia efforts that I've been organizing and advocating for. And protectedarguello.com will take them to stuff for Arguello Boulevard. And over here, it's Valencia for the number four people.com. And you can learn more about what could be. And it's not just for Valencia. I have a lot of pictures of places that have pedestrianized around the United States and around the world to help inspire people to what merchant corridors could look like if we just said no to cars. Well, thanks for coming on. Thank thanks again, Nick. Thank you. So that was Luke Bornheimer and Stacy Randecker talking about the center running Valencia Bike Lane. And now we have Robert Prince of Bike East Bay. He's the new advocacy director. He's been there for a year. Good to meet you virtually. Thanks for having me on. Glad to be here. How's it going? It's been a very busy year. We hit a milestone of 60 protected bikeway projects in the East Bay, but there's another 60 more in the pipeline. And so just keeping track of everything these days can be a challenge. It used to be we'd have like one protected bike lane in the works. And we'd focus all of our advocacy effort on that. Now even just keeping track of what's happening out there in the 40 plus cities that we work in is a challenge. And how many people are on staff at Bike East Bay? We are at 12 people now. So that comes out to about one staff member for every quarter million residents in the East Bay. So we got a lot of room to grow. And so you just heard this interview with Luke and Stacy. What do you think? I mean, it's not your territory, San Francisco, you're the East Bay, but have you had a center running lane in your jurisdiction, your area? Yeah, I wasn't involved with the Valencia Street project, so I can't speak to that and the decision making that went into the design. But we do have one center running bikeway on the ground that's been there for a number of years now on 90th Avenue in East Oakland. It's technically a painted median. If you look at the city's bike map, they won't say it's a set of running protected bikeway for technical reasons, but ultimately it was designed for that purpose and it's used in that way by people who bike there. It was originally conceived in 2017 
So we knew that they were doing a paving project on 90th and wanted to implement pretty standard road diet and bike lanes. There's a four lane street. They wanted to bring it down to one lane each way with a certain turn lane, creates a very basic standard painted bike lanes on each side next to the car parking. But what I like to do is I like to get people involved who are familiar with those corridors and how it's currently being used and how to actually build those uses into the design. So I knew a few folks with a group called the Scraper Bike Team, RB and Champ, and was able to bring them into that meeting. And they really threw staff for a loop by saying, no, we don't want your standard road diet and bike lanes. When we're riding on the street in a group, we ride in the middle because we're a lot more visible that way. And that way we can stay safe. And to their credit, staff was like, okay, that's really interesting. Let's see what we can do with that. It's a residential area. It's actually pretty low traffic, but it is a wide street. So what staff ended up coming up with is that center running concept where they basically took what they were planning on doing as a median and then redesigning it with some flex posts and a painted treatment to look like bike wheels, basically. Yeah, it's beautiful. I'm looking at a picture of it now. Yeah. And that was all done in-house by city staff, all that thermoplastic. It was a really beautiful treatment that the staff members who worked on it, it was a lot of work, but they really enjoyed it, uh, being able to flex their creative muscles. It sounds like a different process and a different kind of street from Valencia. Yeah. And it wasn't even as quick build. I mentioned the concept was developed starting in 2017, but staff really wanted to make sure that there was more than just the scraper bike team that was weighing in on that proposal. So they actually worked with those individuals to go door to door through those neighborhoods and talk to folks and try to get their feedback on the idea. A lot of people liked it. And so they felt confident going forward. And then for people who didn't want to use that center running area, they still maintained, instead of an actual bike lane on the side, it's turned up into a wide shoulder. So if somebody wanted to bike on the side, there was still a safe space for them to do that outside the car door zone. So if you're riding in a group, it might actually be safer to be in the middle and be visible there. But if you're riding individually, someone might still choose to ride on the side. Even if it's not technically a bike lane, it still serves that purpose. Right. Well, I love the fact that you brought in people who are already riding that section of road and got their input of how best to ride. One of the things we talk about is it really is a pick and choose which medicine is best for which street. 90th Avenue in Oakland, it sounds like the center bike lane is the right choice. Why do you think it's not for Valencia? There's no one treatment that's going to work best on every street. You have to really understand how a street is currently used, the types of uses that you want to prioritize there. 90th is fully residential. There's very few traffic signals. The intersections are either stop controlled with stop signs or uncontrolled with just a two-way stop. That makes it a lot easier to design a center running bikeway because every time you hit a signal, you're going to have to have some kind of special turning accommodation. The good news is there have been no fatal crashes there. Oakland has had a number of very bad years with regards to road fatalities, but 90th Avenue has not experienced any of those, even with its difficulties. But all of the flex posts that were installed, they're all gone. I don't know if there's any of them left at this point. The artistic treatment is still there and it's held up well because of the type of material they used. It's very robust. And the flex posts were all gone because cars knocked them down, correct? Yeah, exactly. It's a style called a K71. It looks beefier, but it's not actually more robust than a standard flex post. 
And the city of Oakland was using those a lot for their quick build installations. They've kind of moved away from the K71 style post because anything that you put up in Oakland is going to have to take some hits, <laughs> take some beating. So they're moving towards some more robust styles that have like a plastic base that are a lot easier to maintain and whenever possible, just going full concrete instead of that plastic material. I am a fan of experimenting and iterating. I think going into a project, assuming that we know everything, there's a lot of hubris involved with that, but making sure that you're building in a system to be able to test and have some really good metrics and timelines by which you're going to do those iterations, I think is really important. But those flex posts got really knocked around and they tried planters then and the planters got pushed around. So now it's getting fully built out with concrete right now. It should be done probably sometime in November. And it looks really great now. And I think everybody, for the most part, appreciates the concrete a lot more than the flex posts. But the flex posts were always supposed to be a test. And yet that test drew out too long and then ended up turning some people to the project altogether. I wish we could have moved forward on that concrete a lot faster and kept more people on board as a result. Thanks, Robert. And how do people find you and how do people find out what's going on at Bike East Bay? Well, the website is bikeeastbay.org. Um, you can always check out our events calendar there. If you want to check out a ride or an event or something else that's coming up, you can find me individually on Twitter at Prince Rob. I'm always posting photos of the infrastructure and other cool stuff happening around those 42 individual cities in the East Bay. Thanks. Thanks for having me. here with Gleam Davis, who is the mayor of Santa Monica, California. Gleam, welcome to Bike Talk. Well, thanks for having me. I live in West Hollywood, Los Angeles. And for our listeners who are not in Los Angeles, when you ride your bike from LA to people who ride their bikes, it's much safer. There's a lot more infrastructure. And I wonder if you could explain how you got there. How did you beat Los Angeles to the punch? Well, we might have it a little easier. We're only eight square miles, which is a little different than the vast city of Los Angeles. But I think a lot of it has to do with visionary councils beginning before I joined the city council who understood two things. And one is that if we were ever going to address issues like climate change and sustainability, we needed to start to think beyond the automobile. And the way you did that, of course, is with infrastructure that is geared towards modes of transportation other than the automobile. I think the other thing that's true is that, uh, again, the city councils, including ones that I've been part of, have understood that the only way you're going to move people out of automobiles is to make them feel safe when they're not in an automobile. And so I always say when we're building bike infrastructure, we're not building it for folks like you, perhaps, who is the hardcore cyclist. But well, I don't know about the, that, but thank you. <laughs> but for the people like me who are an unsteady cyclist, who has right. balance issues, who rides a tricycle and would be very nervous on a busy street in an unprotected bike lane. And so I think by building more infrastructure, not only are we addressing climate change, but we're making it easier for people to adjust to the new reality that, you know, if you don't like traffic, the best way to get out of it is to stop being the traffic, get out of your car, ride a bike, walk. I'm a big walker. But I think those are the two things that have really helped us move in the right direction. Great. What kind of pushback did you get or are you getting still? You know, it comes and goes. There are always people who will think, what about this instance where I must have a car when I'm driving for 10 bags of groceries or something? And I always tell people, I personally am not trying to take away their car. I'm just trying to make them use it less. 
And so, sure, if you're going to drive from Santa Monica to West Hollywood and there's not an easy way to get there, then, yeah, use your car. But if you're going 10 blocks down the street and all you're going to do is pick up some hot dog buns, walk or bike. And that's just it. It's getting people to start to one-on-one substitute what could be a car trip with a biking or a walking trip or whatever mode of transportation they're comfortable with. It could be an e-scooter or an e-bike. I always tell people, if you can think of one trip a week that you can swap out car for something else, that's a start. Right. I think that covers two things. One, the safety issue that the reason more people don't bike is because they don't feel safe. And then I think the second thing is crowding. You're right. If one or two people are taken off the street, that makes the street easier for those who need to drive to drive. Absolutely. You mentioned scooters and you had a tweet, I think, about uh, exchange you had with some proponents of multimodal transportation. And I wonder if you could explain what it was. I tried to find it and I couldn't find it. Sure. So Santa Monica is really the home of e-scooters and micromobility. Bird, which was the first company, started here and dumped a bunch of e-scooters on our sidewalks. And sadly, they and other micromobility companies have been paying the price ever since. We have been doing a very long pilot to try and discern the best way to deal with micromobility. And we recently had the issue of coming up of extending that pilot while we moved to a more contract services-based model. And some of my colleagues, frankly, had doubts about keeping scooters on the streets and wanted to ban them. And I simply took the opportunity to point out that a lot of their complaints about scooters were equally valid about cars, and yet we never talk about banning cars. One of the things our staff told us is about a third, at least of all micromobility rides, are trips that would otherwise be in cars. So I pointed out that in any given year, that's 275 to 300,000 more car trips on our street, and nobody likes traffic. People complained about scooters parking and the sidewalk and blocking transit for people who might have a baby carriage or be using a wheelchair. And I pointed out that sadly, we frequently have cars blocking our sidewalk, and yet we still don't talk about banning them. And so I think it was just pointing out that we make a lot of accommodations for automobiles. We don't charge them to use our streets like we charge e-mobility. We don't put the same onerous conditions on people to operate within. We don't make Ford buy a license or enter into a contract to have people drive Fords on our street. And so I just thought that it was important to point out that our current system of regulation favors cars and cars are responsible for far more injuries and accidents on our streets than any sort of micromobility. And again, no one ever says, oh, my God, there was a horrible car accident. Let's ban cars. Let's ban cars. I wish they would sometimes. So that was really the tact I took was not to try and embarrass anybody, but just simply to point out that we should put all transportation, I was going to say on an equal footing, but I think that's wrong. I think we should elevate pedestrian, cycling, non-automobile traffic above automobile traffic. We've tried prioritizing automobile traffic for decades and look what it's gotten us. So I think it's time to prioritize something different. But not all my colleagues agree with that. Sure, sure. Well, speaking of that, you're the mayor now. But it's a year lease on your mayorship, correct? And so yes. someone else is going to come in, I think, in January. How do you set yourself up to keep the improvements that you've been able to accomplish over your term as mayor that aren't lost when the next mayor comes in? We are seeing that in Culver City, where they have taken two steps forward, but now are taking one step back in creating safe streets. So the good news is that the mayor doesn't have any real authority. It's more of a 
ceremonial position. You still need a majority of the council. And I do want to point out that I was mayor when we talked about putting the Ocean Avenue bike lanes in, and we made that part of our downtown community plan, and they've been a huge success. We recently installed some very well-protected bike lanes in another part of town, and the gentleman who will be succeeding me as mayor had a lot of questions about them and actually argued that they should be removed. The good news is just because he may be mayor in the coming year, he cannot unilaterally act. It still takes a majority of the council to reverse that decision, and I don't think there's a majority of the council to do that. But, you know, it is a problem. You pointed out the issue in Culver City. Elections have consequences. And I think sometimes people focus so much on some other local issues, whether it's crime or homelessness, that they forget to ask the candidates about where they stand on mobility. And how do you feel about building out more bike infrastructure? And how do we go about changing our streets so that everybody feels safe? And if we don't focus on those issues, you could get people who could form a majority of the council who could undo a lot of the good work. Right. I know that there's a learning curve to change. Are you seeing people like the gentleman who will be the next mayor see some of the positive benefits of what's been going on in Santa Monica and changing some of their viewpoints? Or are they hardening them, do you think? Um, I hate to be not optimistic. Politicians Mm -hmm. by their nature should be optimistic. I do think that on this particular issue, bike infrastructure, better pedestrian infrastructure, there is a little bit of calcification among the different members of the council. And I want to make it clear, I'm not the only member of the council who's very supportive of really rethinking our infrastructure. But I think that sadly, sometimes people become so reactive to the anger they hear in the community. And look, if you've been driving a car for 40 years and then someone puts a concrete barrier where you used to park that car um, and tells you, no, no, right, right. I'm building bike infrastructure. And you're like, I haven't ridden a bike since I'm eight years old. And you're like, wait a minute, I'm grossly inconvenienced. Or what about when I have a handicapped friend? Or what about when I have this issue? I have to carry 10 bags of groceries, whatever it is. Everyone can always think of the one instance where they're going to be horribly inconvenienced. And it makes people resistant to change. I mean, change is hard. Um, and, And so I do think that sadly, we have some folks in this community, and they express their opinions to council members that say, I don't like this change. This change is inconvenient for me. It's not as easy to pull out of my driveway or I can't park across the apron and block the sidewalk or whatever. And in their defense, I would say some of my colleagues say, well, I'm being responsive to the residents that I listen to. And this is what they're telling me. And my feeling about that is twofold. And one is, it's one of the reasons it shows like this are important, that it's important for people who are interested in really readjusting our physical infrastructure to make it more bike friendly, more micro mobility friendly, more pedestrian friendly, to understand their voices need to be heard. Right. That the people who are angry about the bike lanes will definitely be heard. If you like the bike lanes, it's equally important that you be heard. Write to write to council members or whomever and say, I love that bike lane. Please never change it. Make more. So I think that's the first thing is to make sure that you're on an equal footing voice wise with the people who are mad. And I think the second thing is, again, goes to letting politicians at every level know how important this is to people. And once they see it as being a high priority issue, then they will pay more attention. And I think it'll be harder for people to be resistant to them, because if they're trying to be responsive to their constituents and their constituents are saying, I love bike lanes, 
then they're going to be in favor of bike lanes. Right. I had Jeff Speck on the show recently. He's a urbanist writer, the walkable city, suburban nation. And he said that oftentimes when there are changes made, it doesn't really back up traffic. That traffic has a way of finding its route. And as we know about induced demand, there is also reduced demand. And I can only speak from my one experience on Ocean Avenue when I was riding there recently. There were a lot of bikes in the protected bike lane, yet there were still cars and still plenty of room for cars. And the cars were still moving smoothly. And it was a Saturday. So it was one of the days when that area is fairly crowded with tourists and locals. Yeah, I proposed the Ocean Avenue bike lane with the hope that it would be the backbone of a larger bike network. For people in West LA, San Vicente Boulevard is on the northern edge of Santa Monica and goes into Brentwood and West Los Angeles is very heavy with bike traffic. And so if we can connect that Ocean Avenue lane with San Vicente, we can create a little bit of a bike freeway sort of thing where people who are in Brentwood or West Los Angeles and want to come to Santa Monica have a very safe way of getting there. And I think the more we build of that network, the more people will want to bike and it will become an upward spiral. We just installed some very protected bike lanes on 17th Street here in Santa Monica. I drive. I'm the first to admit I drive. I own a car. But I honestly want to say, and I think this is important as a driver, I view it as a benefit to me as a driver as well. I can think of nothing more horrific than hitting someone on a cycle or who's walking with my car because I'm in this 2,000, 4,000 pound thing and they're effectively unprotected. And so having them separated and not have to swerve out in front of me when someone's going to open the door and door them and stuff like that actually gives me a level of comfort as a driver because I know my chance of having that dangerous interaction with a cyclist is greatly reduced. So I think it benefits both sides of the equation. And as you say, the more people cycle, the less traffic we have in our streets, which actually makes it better for those people who do have to drive. Right. And data does show us that when you add a bike lane on a street, it makes the street safer for everybody, for drivers also. I want to ask you about the PCH. The PCH is a highway for our listeners who don't know Santa Monica. It's a highway that runs north-south, right on the coast, up into Malibu and south down into Orange County, I guess. And there is not a bike lane on a majority of the PCH. Now, in a lot of Santa Monica, you have the ocean path where bikes can ride. But what is your responsibility to provide a safe buffer lane for surfers, for tourists, for people on bikes, and also for our unhoused population that is often down at the beach? Well, the short answer is we don't control a Santa Monica PCH, so we couldn't make any physical changes that belongs to the state. But I think PCH is a perfect example of a very fast traveling road. It comes right off the freeway, as you know, Um, in Santa Monica, the freeway ends and Pacific Coast Highway begins. And it's a perfect example to me of a road that calls out for serious reconfiguration and a road diet. It's three lanes through most of Santa Monica, and I think it could easily be reduced to two and then create on each side a protected bike lane that would be available for cyclists. You could do a separated pedestrian lane on the California incline, which comes from Santa Monica down to the Pacific Coast Highway. We have both a pedestrian lane, a separated pedestrian lane, and a separated bike lane, which works beautifully. But then you get, as you say, to Pacific Coast Highway, and that infrastructure gets much more hostile to both pedestrians and cyclists. So I think that it cries out for reconfiguration to create protected bike and pedestrian lanes. 
And we know that it is a deadly highway. And I think if we are committed to human life, as I think most people say they are, we really need to think about that kind of location being right for really changing the way we think about it. And as you point out, people are worried, well, you take away a lane of traffic, then traffic's going to get backed up. And studies show that's not necessarily the case. But I think more importantly, again, we're moving towards a situation where we are favoring people not in automobiles, but we're using alternative means of transportation. Great. Well, Glean Davis, thank you for all the help you've done in Santa Monica and making it more bike friendly. And thanks for coming on Bike Talk. Well, thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. Okay, we're talking today with Mr. Derby, the PE teacher at Northampton High School, and we have some of his students who will remain anonymous for legal purposes. Yeah, we're 15. <laughs> Are you a new convert to e-bikes, Mr. Derby? I am. I just got my first e-bike last November, and it was on the heels of a pretty devastating knee injury where I was in my first period of class. We were playing indoor ultimate frisbee, and my patella tendon snapped. So basically my patella kind of split into two and my tendon was severed and my kneecap went up into my leg. It was pretty devastating injury. I was given 18 to 24 month, 100% recovery. I was stuck on the couch having to get my knee bent by a machine for six weeks. I couldn't get up by myself. I couldn't lay down by myself. It was pretty bad. And so I did a lot of research on what I could do to rehab my knee. And one of the main things you do is ride an exercise bike. And as I was looking into that, I found that some people were using e-bikes to supplement their healing. So I started going down that path of investigation. And really what it came out was e-bikes would take off the strain from my knee, but allow me to move my legs and be outside and get other forms of exercise that would aid my rehabilitation. A big part of exercise is it should be something you're motivated to do or else you're not going to do it, however good it is. Right. And so that was, for me, being a mountain biker and being a cyclist for my whole life, basically, just sitting indoors was not conducive for my mental health and was not conducive for me wanting to rehabilitate. Having a bike where I could go outside and feel the fresh air and use my upper body and go through interesting terrain, that was critical piece to my healing because I got out and did it. Once I could, I couldn't get my legs all the way around to pedal. That was like an aha moment when I was able to go all the way around once. Because I was like, once I can go all the way around once, I knew I was on the path to get outside. As soon as I went around once on the exercise bike, I was able to convince my wife to let me buy an electric mountain bike. What's the top speed on it? So it's a class one e-bike. It tops out at 20 miles an hour. It has a pretty strong engine, so it has a lot of torque. You guys know what torque is? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so it's like the strength at which you get pushed. So I can go up stuff that's very, very steep, and I don't have to pedal that hard, but the pedal assist bike doesn't have a throttle. You have to pedal. So you're always getting a workout. It's just your heart isn't gonna explode and you don't feel like you're gonna keel over. You know, you're just spinning. Is there any specific person or video that made you want to buy the e-bike? Yeah, actually, it's funny. When I started researching e-bikes, I was in a straight leg brace. I couldn't really move that much. My wife took me to the bike shop. And when I got there, one of the owners of the bike shop was there. And he's like, oh, you're looking at e-bikes and you have a knee injury. He's like, I was in a ski accident last year. And he's like, I just went skiing today. He must have gone up to Vermont somewhere. 
And he's like, I could not ever have skied if it wasn't for my electric assist bike. So that really changed my whole perspective because I heard some things, I found some things online, but that was like a real life testimonial. And I saw that he had just gone skiing and he attributed that 100% to his e-bike because he was riding all summer. And he had just had knee surgery like eight months before. So that was a big deal for me. I was like, I want to be that. I want to be healed. Do you think it's a good investment? The ethics of e-bikes are interesting, you know? It's like a lot of people think that they're cheating bikes or that they don't have a place or they're just glorified motorcycles or whatever. But I think that they offer a level of accessibility to maybe people that are trying to build a fitness level or are trying to rehabilitate, try to get better that a normal bike doesn't necessarily offer. I grew up riding just regular bikes and my whole life I've ridden bikes and I didn't have an electric bike until now, but I feel that they have a place and that when they're used responsibly can be part of the fabric of trail users and people that are enjoying outdoors and getting recreation and exercise. How much it cost? They're expensive. So I did my research and I found there's a brand called Specialized and they have these really fancy bikes and it just happened to be at the time I was looking, one of the ones that was kind of within my price range was on sale. But it's not cheap. So I get thousand more than that. This one was about six thousand. Six thousand. And if you think about it, if you look at the technology, it's, it, it's a carbon fiber bike. It's a real mountain bike with shocks that are big, thick shocks. You guys ever heard of the mountain bike park at Berkshire East? They have like big jumps and it's like a downhill mountain bike park. So this bike is designed, it's a full suspension bike. It's carbon fiber, has a big battery in the down tube and a big engine on the bottom. And you control it with a control on your handlebars. Either get a little bit of assist so you get more of a workout or you can go to turbo mode when you're going up something really steep and it like takes the pressure off your legs. So you can still go out and ride anything. If you look at some trails that look steeper and rockier than you think anybody could ever ride, you could ride it with this. Where do you see yourself as of right now without that e-bike? Oh, that's a good question. Similar to the guy that I met at the bike shop, I would attribute a lot of my healing to the fact that I was able to ride my bike three days a week, sometimes more, and be out in the fresh air, and take my mind off the fact that I was really injured and pushing my limits every single time I got on my bike. It has changed my recovery immensely, I would say. I think it was so beneficial. I went for a walk with my wife yesterday and I didn't think about my knee once. I didn't think about the fact that I was injured and I'm not even a year out. And they told me 18 to 24 months. So I couldn't believe it. At the end of the walk, I was like, I didn't even think about my knee. And that's one of the first times when I forgot that I had injured my knee. I think that having this electric bike has really changed my path to recovery. And then, I don't know if you guys have noticed, but I've been riding my bike to school every day because I got a commuter bike that has electric assist. I could ride my normal bike to school. I'm strong enough now that I could ride. But you know what it is? It's like after a long day with you guys and a seven and a half mile ride home, you get tired. But when you have a little bit of assist, it just gives you that motivation to say, I can do this today. And so last week I rode my, my bike every single day. You know, so that's another layer of healing that I'm adding on because I'm, I'm moving my legs before school, moving my legs after school. I mean, it's not the biggest workout. When I see you guys first period, I'm still sweating from the fact that I rode my bike. It's not like it's a motorcycle. So it's been huge, it's been huge. Do you prefer the bike over your car? I like my car. But I will say, you know what it's like in the morning? You all know, it's a little, yeah. a little crisp outside. Yeah. You know, that fresh air, it kind of wakes you up. 
It's you get that little workout and it makes you feel like you're alive. And it feels good. It's different than driving a car. Driving a car is just passive, you know? Just like But when you're on your bike, you have to go around people, you have to see what traffic's coming, you get to weave through. It's a little bit more exciting. Fun. Yeah, it's totally fun, right? So that piece for me makes it more interesting than driving. But I like driving still too. Have you ever had problem riding your bike in traffic? Uh, yeah, after school on Thursday, I almost got hit by a truck. And there was, so, <laughs> there was a bus behind me, and I was in the bike lane, and one of the high school students pulled over to talk to some of their friends, so they were kind of half in the bike lane. And I was just going around them. I was moving pretty good, because my commuter bike can go 28 miles an hour, so it can almost go 30. And I was flying down the bike lane, big bus behind me, and they start to pull out without looking. And so I had to make sure I didn't get hit by the bus, make sure that this truck kind of saw me, and it ended up being pretty close. I would say one thing about riding a bike is I always wear my helmet, and I always drive defensively. I always drive like nobody can see me, because I do have friends that have gotten seriously injured on bikes, road biking and mountain biking. So I always approach it with the mindset of I'm going to protect myself and be as aware as I can be, because I don't trust anybody, right? That's a good question. Knowing you gotta go home to your wife and kids, what's your biggest fear while riding a bike? Drivers. I mean, you all know. You see people driving, they're on their cell phone, right? And we know what happened in front of our school. We had a student get hit last year. We had a cyclist get hit last year. My biggest fear right now is people in their cars. But I will say this, I'm very lucky, and we are very lucky, because in Northampton, in East Hampton, where I live, we have bike paths where you don't have to worry about cars other than when you cross the street. And that takes a lot of the fear away. If I had to just ride on the roads, that freaked me out a little bit. And you know what? You want to hear something funny? Because I told you I've been riding my bike my whole life. My mom taught at Amherst High School for like 30-something years. She was an art teacher. She rode her bike every single day on Route 9 because there was no bike path. When she was pregnant with me, she rode her bike to school from Northampton to Amherst on Route 9 every single day over the Coolidge Bridge. And when it got below 38 degrees, she would start taking the bus because she didn't really drive. So she was tough. When you say it's cold outside, my mom would go at 39 degrees. She'd put on her jacket. She'd get on her bike and ride to school. So it's in your blood. It's in my blood. I used to do that too. No, that's nice. Yeah, I don't mind the cold. Hey, you know what they say? We're in New England. There's no such thing as bad weather, just inappropriate clothing. Yeah. Right? <laughs> well, thanks. Thank you for letting us interview you on your e-bike. And your doctor prescribed the e-bike. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he said he was thinking about prescribing e-bikes in the future to his patients because it worked so effectively. Thanks for coming by, Mr. Derby. Oh, you're welcome. We should set up our own podcast. Salem Derby down at Northampton High School. And you want to take us out with a quote, Taylor? Sure. Work to eat, eat to live, live to ride, ride to work. (laughs) That's wonderful. Thanks for the show, Taylor and Lindsay. We'll see you next time. And that was Bike Talk. If you have a story, a tip, or a topic, head over to biketalk.org and send us a message. Talk again next week. Push on a pedal, push on a pedal, get ya. 
heart started push on a pedal push it down and up again push on a pedal push on a pedal get your heart started push on a pedal push it down and up again get on your bike sit on the seat put your feet on the pedal and ride it all around ride it all around get on your bike sit on the seat put your feet on the pedals and ride it all around ride it all around Oh, catch yourself a bike. Oh, catch yourself a bike. 